Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Steve Ducey. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. Elisa Brady. One thing the White House and the oil industry appear to agree on is that more oil could help lower gas prices. So one lawmaker wants a fast track for pumping up supply. Right now, the administration is killing energy by a death of a thousand cuts. I'm Chris Foster. Tyler Jacobs back in Minnesota after being arrested by Russian troops as he tried to leave Ukraine. The interrogation process was a bit like mentally taxing, but other than that, like they treated me very well. The guy that questioned me would pay for food out of his own pocket. And I'm Dan Gaynor. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Some of the biggest names in oil and gas, executives from Exxon, BP, Chevron and Shell are due on Capitol Hill for the second hearing this week on the fossil fuel industry, which got drilled at a Tuesday hearing over unused leases. That's hundreds of millions of barrels of oil they're not drilling for right now. Even as we see their crocodile tears being shed about how they need even more leases. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, as Democrats also suggest that price gouging is part of the reason for rising gas prices. But industry officials say Biden administration policies are discouraging production and that it's short-sighted. When the administration first came in, it was all about getting rid of oil and natural gas. Well, President Biden's own Department of Energy projects oil and gas consumption will continue to increase through the year 2050 and beyond. Kathleen Sagama is president of the Western Energy Alliance, which represents over 200 independent oil and gas producers. She told lawmakers they need more financing to develop existing leases. It's a debate that keeps putting President Biden in the middle between calls for more U.S. production and his efforts to speed up the fight against climate change. A recent poll by the Pew Research Center found strong support among Americans for a future mixture of fossil fuels and renewable energy. And one U.S. senator is proposing a four-pronged approach to address energy and climate, as well as national security and economic goals. So we have what we call Operation Warp Speed. Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy is a member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Just like the previous administration brought all the agencies in together and produced a safe, effective vaccine within 10 months, when people said it would take two to 10 years, we need to do the same thing for energy production. Bring all these agencies, which, you know, oh, we have to wait till hear from them. Oh, it'll take us six months to get back to you. Oh, we don't like the answer at six more months. Instead, you bring them all in the same room. You answer the question, okay? Work it out right now. Now, of course, it's a little, you know, exaggerated uh, as I'm describing, but producing the COVID vaccine gave us a model. We need an operation warp speed for domestic energy production. And what are the sort of prongs of that that you're proposing? How would that work? Yeah, so there has to be regulatory certainty. Right now, the administration is killing energy by a death of a thousand cuts. Whatever they can do to slow down the permitting process, they are doing. 
And as a result, we can't get the capital. The workers are, well, I don't want to hire a bunch of people because I, I don't know if I'm going to get my permit, on and on. So we have proposed legislation which would streamline that process that would allow for these agencies to work better together. There also needs to be assurance regarding financing. So if the administration is kind of making it sound like if you invest here, you're going to go bankrupt, nobody's going to invest. If we can give financing certainty by putting a 5% stake in a project, you do that 5% stake, that is a signal to everyone else that I can invest there and my investment will be secure. It seems easier for the White House to talk about, you know, 9,000 unused leases than for anyone pushing back on that to try and explain why there's a lot more to it than that. Do you have any sense that people are, are listening to the fuller story, like the fact that maybe there are some unused leases, but not as many leases as there used to be, and that the permits aren't coming as quickly? Or you know, do, do people just want to start paying less for things and they're not really getting all of that? So I don't think the administration has credibility. They lost it in week one of the administration when they canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. And folks just have a common sense about it. There's a joke going around the Internet. Wait a second. Canceling the pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, is going to hurt Russia's economy, but canceling Keystone XL pipeline won't hurt ours. Uh, there's just a common sense that people are getting. Wait a second. We are no longer going to import 700,000 barrels of oil from Russia a day. But why were we importing from the Russians instead of from the Canadians? So I think they've lost credibility on this. Frankly, their only way to regain is an Operation Warp Speed type operation, which would increase domestic energy production. It would lower the price at the pump, help our allies, create a heck of a lot of uh, U.S. energy jobs. Are you hoping that enough public pressure, not just from lawmakers, but from their constituents, could help lead to progress on this issue? Because it isn't just political pressure. There is, you know, public concern about climate change. Absolutely. But I will point out that they know it has to be political pressure because they're far left wing uh, really kind of like this situation. They under the mistaken notion that if prices go high enough, that it's better for us all. But the fact that I think Republicans are going to do really well in the next elections in November, precisely because of inflation, which is tied to the cost of energy, and then the price of gasoline at the pump and the price of heating bills, all tied to energy, of course, is going to have the American people demand a change. I would like that political pressure to become something positive. Wait a second. We're Democrats, but we don't want to get totally slaughtered at the uh, voting booth. Maybe we can do something that understands the pressure the average family is under financially because of energy and do something to help that family. Yeah, they would have a little bit of a win. I'm all about that family. If we can help that family win, we're better off. You represent Louisiana. Do you hear more from constituents now than you used to concerns about things like more flooding? So it's interesting. The point I make, you can't look at energy without also looking at national security, the economy of a country and a family, as well as climate. My state has lost more land mass to sea level rising than any other state in the nation. But we make the point that you don't make that better by not producing America's energy resources. Because the Biden administration has done their best 
to hold back production of U.S. natural gas and oil, Germany is going to burn a lot of coal. And that coal has a much greater carbon footprint than U.S. natural gas. Russia, where they've been buying gas, has 40% greater carbon footprint than does natural gas produced in the United States and shipped over to Europe. So if you really care about the climate, we should be producing U.S. oil and natural gas using our environmental standards, replacing Russian natural gas and coal that Germany and other countries are burning that will lower greenhouse gas emissions, do something positive for global greenhouse gas emissions, and by the way, also help us in our struggle to establish an economy free of Russian energy. Is there any traction on Capitol Hill for urging a policy shift on something like speeding up permits? Are you hearing anything from the other side of the aisle, including about your proposal? So far, the administration has been all talk and no action. They speak as if there's no impediments to developing energy. By the way, this is also true for renewables. Louisiana has been trying to get permission to move forward with carbon capture sequestration. We can't get permission on that. Speaking of, by the way, the regulatory problems. So it's just dysfunction. They can talk a game, but until they actually begin to execute, I don't think people believe. Now, me, I'm talking to colleagues, both Democrat and Republican. I'm trying to talk to the White House. What can we do to move forward on an Operation Warp Speed? I think it's good for our country. One clear area of bipartisanship has been wanting to help Ukraine. I'm wondering, has the massacre in Bucha and other towns around the Ukrainian capital that has only recently come to light, has it changed the conversation about assistance at all? I have not yet spoke to the administration since this has come to light. Republicans have continued to push the administration to be stronger on the sanctions and to allow things, for example, the transfer of MiGs from Poland to Ukraine. More systems, if you will, that they know how to use, that they can use right away. And the administration has followed. This, I think, will lead to even stricter sanctions because uh, countries that so far have been neutral and have continued to support the Russian economy by buying their oil are going to have to really answer if they are willing to be complicit in the slaughter that took place at Busha. And I think policymakers in Washington will be interested in pushing these so-called neutral countries harder. I'm wondering if there's any effort to try to convince the president or the Pentagon that allowing more offensive weapons instead of defensive weapons is worth the risk of what President Putin's reaction might be. You know, when you look at those pictures of bodies scattered, when you read that there's rape, that some of these bodies have their hands tied behind their uh, head execution style. They weren't just caught in crossfire. No, they had their hands tied behind their back and they were brought out and they were shot. And then you have the 250 corpses, uh, including children as as young as 14. And we could go on. If that doesn't drive you to understand that this regime has to be stood up against as forcefully as possible, nothing will. Just Google the pictures, and you understand just the horrific nature of what's taking place. And by the way, what's taking place clearly labels their command structure and ultimately Putin as war criminals. And it certainly actually folds back into 
the energy debate, not only because of countries, especially in Europe, having or trying to rely less on Russia, but, you know, Republicans have argued before that energy independence is a national security issue. Is that resonating more with people now, not only because gas prices are so high, but because of what's happening in Ukraine? Well, it's clear that Russia is using energy as a weapon. We have to weaponize energy back. And the degree to which we make the rest of the world free of Russian energy, we have weaponized ours, and we weaken their economy, and we weaken their ability to fight war. Now, I would like to think that everybody's gotten that memo on Capitol Hill. But I think it's at this point Republicans who are pushing this. As I said earlier, I'm all about there's a nexus, national security, energy, economy of a family and a nation, as well as climate. We can do all four. If we do all four, we're stronger, they're weaker. We have more jobs, they have fewer jobs. Our military can be better supported, and theirs is weakened. It is something we must do. Several Republicans now plan to support Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Um, where do you stand on her, and is it a more difficult decision with a historic nominee? So I, I've made my announcement regarding Judge Jackson. When the political left voted against Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Bryant, all obviously qualified, but just because they did not like their presumed jurisprudence, they've kind of established how we are now viewing Supreme Court nominees. Um, Judge Jackson is accomplished. She's obviously well-educated, she's intelligent, she's gracious. But it's clear from the people who really want her to be nominated, she is going to be to the political left. So using the same standard that the political left uses, I've decided to oppose her. Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, thank you very much for your time. Hey, thank you, Lisa. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Dan Gaynor with your Fox News commentary coming up. In mid-February, President Biden warned Americans in Ukraine about the Russian troops on the border. American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation, and things could go crazy quickly. The president on NBC News. Two weeks later, the Russians invaded Ukraine, and Tyler Jacob from Minnesota was still there, teaching English at a school run by his Ukrainian girlfriend, now wife, living in Kherson, the first major Ukrainian city captured by Russian forces. He was taken into custody by Russian troops as he tried to leave last month, now back home in Minnesota. His wife and stepdaughter are out of Ukraine in what he'll only say is a NATO country. I, I went there in um, November is actually when I, I showed up on the 21st of November. And at that point, there was kind of like little whispers of things happening. And I had spoke with the wife a little bit about that. I'm like, so like, are we concerned about this? And she says, no, everything is perfectly fine here. And like everything was day to day. So we just moved on with our life. Everything happened. And then we got married. Um, I hung out with one of my friends in the middle towards the end of January. And we were kind of discussing some of this. And he goes, do you think it's going to like do anything? And I'm like, well, I think he's just trying to put pressure to see what the rest of the world will do. So like, I didn't think anything would come of it. And then I left for Poland to get a visa for Ukraine so I could stay longer because I didn't think anything was going to happen. And then four days after I returned, the airport next to us got blown up. 
what was the final straw to make you get out? Was there some sort of, hey, foreigners can get out now and you just you couldn't take them with you? So <clears throat> somehow, I don't know how, but my wife had heard about an armored train that left for Crimea from her son. And we're really confused. So I started researching and trying to find a way to safely get myself out because being an American, Russian troops don't really treat you with the best respect like the actual troops. So we figured if I could go out and go to this like quote unquote safe part of Russia, then I might be able to like be a bit safer. I had found a... Uh, website called Travel Ukraine, which is actually what I used to get my insurance to go there in the first place. And they had phone numbers. So we did that. I found phone numbers on there. I gave them to her. She started calling them. They weren't much help. So I was like, well, crap. So I still had stuff in my flat. Luckily, at the time, the um, the babushkas of uh, her son or the grandmas of her son uh, actually had liberated the city. So we were able to like freely walk around and there's tons of people. And so we went quickly to our, uh, to my flat in the center of the city and uh, we were going to go grab stuff. And then at um, 12 o'clock, sure. 12, 12, 15, she received a phone call saying, Hey, like there's foreigners leaving on buses today at one 30. So after she got off the phone and everything figured out in the details, we had about 50 minutes to drive 20 minutes back, grab my stuff and 20 minutes back to the buses. Wow. How, what was so, it like being? What was it like being detained? I mean, did they just, you know, board the bus or or, or to stop or something? And were they checking papers? Why you? Because you're American, right? So we everything was smooth. Like at first we got we had one stop that we had to check, and they checked the, the list of people um, that each bus had. And I was a little bit nervous then because I'm like, well, this is probably going to be bad if they see my passport. And then we moved forward. We went to a checkpoint that they checked the bus, like underneath the buses and stuff, because then we were really close to Arminsk. And then a gentleman got on the bus. And luckily, the Turkish guy kind of told him, hey, everything's perfectly fine here. And then he left. And I was, like at that point, my heart was racing a little bit. Um, and then we kept moving. So I was like, OK, perfect. Like things are going great. And then we hit the uh, our Minsk um, border or like the checkpoints to go across border control. I walked through all of that. I was like, okay, this is going really swimmingly. Like um, everything's going to be fine. Went through border. They get, gave me my stamp. I walked on past and then I got to the bus or I talked to the Russian media, of course, and then got to the bus, um, drove to the next spot where they asked questions and checked our documents and like figured out why we were traveling. And then that's when they started like really deeply questioning and they must have figured out that I would have military background. And then they held me there until six in the morning and tried to force me to sign stuff. And then after that, then um, they took me to a, a court. They sentenced me to 10 days in prison and then transferred me to Simferopol. And that's where I stayed. And then they kept like, they kept pulling me out Wednesday through Saturday to question me, and usually for eight, eight to twelve hours. I were they for what? Just I assume it was very repetitive. Oh yeah, very repetitive. So the first day was like literally only questions about my wife, and then they finally like I kept telling them like I don't feel comfortable telling you guys anything about my family. Like that's a, you're here, you're detaining me. You're not detaining them. Like leave them out of this. And then they finally came in with a photo of her from their phone. That was a photo I don't have of her. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, that's what kind of what trouble am I in here? And then they're like, this is your wife. And I'm like, yeah, that is my wife. Um, and then they left and I'm like, great. Now they're going to try and go capture my wife. But yeah, they, so they were, they, they thought I was a spy 
is really what it was. And they have, they have this legend that um, American spies, like they're be- like the best ones their cover is an English teacher. Well, I, I, you know, that's probably, that's probably true. Um, as far as I know, from what you've said publicly that you were, you weren't treated terribly. I mean, you weren't treated, I wouldn't want to be, you know, interrogated for eight to 12 hours a day, but you, um, but, as, but all things considered, I assume though, in your darkest moments during that time, you must've been thinking, oh my God, am I going to ever leave here alive? Right. Yeah, that's definitely exactly what I was thinking on, um, Thursday. So when Tuesday, Wednesday, it was just kind of like general questions. Like, Hey, what, what, what are you doing? Why were you in Ukraine? What's your like history? They took all of my work history for the past five years. Um, <laughs> and like, they were just like battering me with just general life questions. And I'm like, okay, this is easy. Like, I'm not lying about any of this. It's all public information in the U S so they can figure that out. But like I got through all of that. And then by Wednesday, they started like late Wednesday, they started questioning me about some specific documents on my computer, some specific photos that I had. And then Thursday morning after he pulled me out at 10 o'clock, he had a stack, probably an inch and a half thick of papers that he had printed from my phone. And all of the photos were just downloads from this group that I was in that they kept sending all these like pro Ukrainian photos and stuff. And I got really tired of deleting 700 photos a day. So I just left them and then he had all those printed and there was two of them that I actually took. And, um, he, when he asked, like asked me all of them, like those are downloaded. And then he asks me one that was mine that I took off my driver's license to send to back here to get some money figured out. Um, I'm like, yeah, I took that. And he could, at first he was like, was this from Viber too? And I'm like, no, I took that one. It's my own driver's license. But yeah, he was, they were just like the, the interrogation process was a bit like mentally taxing. But other than that, like they treated me very well. The guy that questioned me would pay for food out of his own pocket, <laughs> which was completely shocking. And then the guards and stuff were always super friendly towards me. Um, there was two captains that rotated out of the three of them that like loved me. Like they actually tried speaking English with me. So uh, we've heard stories about Russian troops being deceived by their leadership about why they were there. They're, you're here to fight Nazis. You're here to protect Russian speakers. Some may not have even known they were ever going into Ukraine at all. Did, did you get that far with anybody? Did you have any sense of that they knew why they were there or did you just not get that far with them? So, I mean, some of them, like from what I, what I was understanding from what I was hearing from my wife was that like some of them actually, um, I had no idea that they were getting involved in this. And I mean, some like there were um, the Ukrainians were recording them and like get questioning, like, why are you here? And they're like, we have no idea. Like we were just told we were driving along the border and then we were in the middle of Ukraine getting shot at and killed and captured. So like, and then there's a ton of those that are like that. I mean, my wife showed me like 50 videos that were like that in the first three days of the war. And when I was in, waiting in the jail before I got transferred down to Simferopol, there was a guy in the army who spoke very good English who was translating for the rest of the guys when they asked me questions about stuff in my bags. Um, I was talking with him about some of this stuff because they were super friendly towards me too. And he was just like telling me that the regular Russian soldiers don't want this war. And like, it's just, it's, they're just supposed to be family. Like they just, sometimes they would just drive past each other and wave and not shoot at each other. 
uh, I know the State Department got involved. Senator Amy Klobuchar got involved. She's from Minnesota. You're from Minnesota. Um, mm-hmm. What was it like? Were you updated? You know, is the the progression of your of your case, for lack of a better word, or was it suddenly okay? You're leaving. It was just so basically like I knew that my court order was for 10 days and I knew that if they found something on my computer, then they could extend it. But I knew that I had nothing to hide from them. So like I knew personally on March 22nd at eight o'clock, I was going to be free. Like I just I knew that from square one. But I know that everything that Amy Klobuchar, the senators or the State Department, the embassy of Moscow, all of that stuff being involved showed the russians that i'm not a spy because if i was a spy it'd be complete radio silence like i wouldn't exist to them and the whole country was on fire while i was gone so like to that showed them that i was just an unfortunate american um any short-term plans any long-term plans Are you so not- short-term short-term right now is getting them here um, long term is we're moving down to Florida and going to set up in Fort Myers and I'm going to try and figure out to get my GI Bill and then go to school for um, computer science and try and get a, a job in that field. Well, look, um, uh, I hope you see your family soon. Good luck to you. I'm glad you're you're home safe. Uh, Tyler Jacob, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. the news now you can with instant updates from fox news for amazon alexa just say alexa play news from fox in fox news it's the latest when you need it on demand from fox news and amazon alexa rate and review the fox news rundown on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it's time for your fox news commentary dan gainer What's on your mind? It's real. The 2020 election is a distant memory, and only now are the news media beginning to talk about the Hunter Biden laptop. The Washington Post released a big report on Hunter Biden's ties to China and the ways in which his family profited from the relationships built over Joe Biden's decades in public service. According to the paper, CEFC China, the Chinese energy conglomerate, and its executives paid $4.8 million to entities controlled by Hunter Biden and his uncle. About a year and a quarter after the New York Post reporting, finally, liberal legacy outlets are getting involved. First, the New York Times admitted the laptop is legitimate, 17 months late, because it's real. So if Hunter Biden's laptop's real, what else is? Are the allegations of corruption involving the president and his black sheep son real? Is Joe Biden really the big guy getting 10% from our enemies in China? They didn't want us to know. They didn't even ask us the questions. NBC waited 261 days to file another report on the laptop scandal. ABC and CBS waited even longer. Back in 2020, then-candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter were linked to possible corruption in both Ukraine and China. Two nations that figure prominently in the news now. Only the man many think is the big guy is everybody's big guy, the president of the United States. Is he compromised by his son's deals in either nation? We are poised with a possible nuclear confrontation with Russia and Ukraine. It sure would be nice to know if the Bidens had some corrupt relationships that might influence their willingness to send Americans into war. So what do we know for sure? We know big tech manipulated the presidential election. They admitted it. Hell, they were proud of the fact. 
Facebook and Twitter suppressed the exclusive story in record time. Facebook Director of Communications Andy Stone declared, we are reducing its distribution on our platform. Stone's previous work included three separate stints with Democrats. Twitter locked the New York Post account and silenced those who shared the story, even the personal account of White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. Twitter froze the post out of its account until October 30th, just three days before the election. The press became the Praetorian Guard for the future president, terming the report Russian disinformation. The deep state gave the whole corrupt mess an air of legitimacy. More than 50 former senior intelligence officials signed on to a letter saying the story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. That strategy worked. Biden sits in the White House, stumbling and bumbling through a presidency that has crushed American energy independence, spiked inflation, and abandoned Americans in multiple war zones. But the deep state won't apologize because it worked. Polling indicates that full knowledge of the Sun scandal could have flipped six battleground states to Trump. That would have meant Trump won in a walk. We'd be in year two of his second term. Big tech and big journalism and the deep state, they all undermined a presidential election. None of them were fired. None of them prosecuted. As far as I can tell, none of them even apologized. Unless the legacy media push hard on this story, it will all blow over. Until next time. And you can bet there will be a next time. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.